coming. So this will be signs of his coming, part two. And we're going to pick up where we left off. And Jesus speaking to these uh, Pharisees and explaining to them, uh, they were asking him about the coming kingdom of God. Uh, by way of quick review, they were looking forward to a coming kingdom where they would have a ruler that would take over, uh, you know, currently they were in the uh, bondage uh, to Rome, and, and they were really looking for another Moses, uh, another David, another Solomon, that would actually set up a rule and reign that would establish Israel as the premier kingdom of the world, and they would return to their former days of glory. And that's the kind of leader that they were looking for. What they actually needed, though, they needed someone that would die for their sins, uh, just the same as we do. They actually needed the atoning of sins. Uh, they needed something that was better than the blood of bulls and goats, uh, as had been taking place uh, for some time, many, many years, uh, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, they had you know, really inspected him as they had other leaders to see would he be able to fulfill what they were looking for. And what they were looking for was really a ruler that would help put them in a place of authority, superiority, and that they would be authenticated in their own uh, ministries. But Jesus really was not what they were looking for. He was a humble servant. Uh, he didn't come like a king. He didn't come on a white horse. Uh, he came as a suffering servant. And so he begins to talk about this as we pick it up in verse 25. He, he only says one slight thing about that, and then he gets into uh, the real end of the age and what it'll look like at the time of his second coming. And this is a bit of a brief uh, kind of uh, stepping into that uh, period of time that we're still looking forward to because when he gets closer to the cross, uh, that is when he has what you may hear from time to time as the Olivet Discourse. And at that time, he speaks even in more depth, more detail about the signs of the end of the age. But let's pick up with verse 25, reading verses 25 through 37. But first, he, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the, uh, the Son of Man. They ate... They drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sown from gold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in the, and that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let's pray. We'll also take this time to pray for our nation, and just you can be remain seated. Every week we pray for revival, and this text certainly invokes a need for us to be ready 
and revive prior to the Lord's coming. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning in your word. Uh, we pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you, as we already sang, that you'll be present here. We know that you are in our hearts. Those of us who have been born again, we know you're present. We pray that you'll be powerful, Lord, that you'll speak and minister to through your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, uh, for our nation uh, that in many respects uh, is blinded to the fact that your return is fast approaching. We pray that you would uh, awaken your church. You would uh, bring the revival and the awakening in this nation so needed uh, to transform lives. And Lord, all the problems that we're trying to solve are found in you and you alone. And Lord, that we would see, even as tonight as we head into the correctional facility, all those young people, all those guards that need to be saved, all those that are riding by this church this morning, headed uh, different places that need to know you, that need to find, Lord, the living water that comes through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would bring revival in our time, that there would be a great harvest before you return. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters that are standing firm in the faith, being persecuted as you spoke of on the Mount of Olives, Lord. Uh, they're being, uh, Lord, just hunted down and, uh, Lord, just attacked simply for naming the name of Jesus Christ. We pray for their deliverance. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would put a hedge around their families, Lord, that you would reunite them, that you'd heal them, that you'd comfort them. Pastor Said representing so many. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, in the days in which we live, Lord, you'd revive your church, but you'd also bring many that are lost without hope to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this Bible study and all who hear it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, back in the, um, I was born in 1969, so I don't remember the early 70s that much, uh, but I do remember the mid-70s pretty good. I, I have, uh, some of you might have a pretty good memory. I remember things about six on pretty well, and uh, in the early 70s, there was, uh, for a period of time, and it, this is kind of what birthed Calvary Chapel movement, you've heard of the Jesus movement, right? So this took place, uh, kind of came out of the 60s. If you look at the late 60s in the United States, you had uh, you know, the hippie generation that was kind of a revolt against authority and a revolt against uh, just kind of structure and order. Uh, if you go a little further back, let me take a little further back, uh, you have this great euphoria over winning World War II, right? The whole nation as euphoric over winning World War II. And then, you know, there is the kind of the quagmire of the Korean War shortly after that. But generally speaking, through the 50s, uh, America saw an incredible time of plenty. Factories exploded, industry, Elvis Presley, music came on the scene, all of those things. And with the kind of success and the belief that, hey, we had already been in the war to end all wars, which again, the Korean War quickly proved that wasn't true. Uh, but nevertheless, there was this feeling that, uh, you know, we're in great shape now. We've settled the major problems of the world, and, and the nation kind of just, you know, parents allowed, uh, you know, their kids to kind of really kind of grow up in a nice period of time. And, and yet, through it all, comes the, the 60s, where people had enjoyed maybe a music generation that we'd never seen before, and you would think that, well, things are just going to be sock hops forever, like the 50s, right? But, you know, their kids actually kind of 
revolted, didn't want anything to do with organized religion. You had uh, all of these things that were going on in other parts of the world that showed that the, the peace that maybe World War II was supposed to bring didn't happen. That's why there were songs like Give Peace a Chance and all this kind of stuff, the Vietnam War. It was the Cold War going on, right? You have uh, Russia, which was called at that time the USSR, remember? And, you know, Americans hated to watch Russia in the Olympics. We despised them. And there was the Cold War going on, and you had Cuba, and you've got China, and you've got proxy wars in the southeast, uh, southeast part of Asia, uh, which, again, the Vietnam War was certainly a part of that. And people really were dying in the Vietnam War, so it wasn't like it was just uh, something that was theoretical. People would actually receive their own dead sons and grandsons coming back, didn't know why they were fighting against communism, what, is, what has it got to do with us, College campuses were exploding. Riots were taking place in, in cities like Los Angeles, Miami, Detroit. All these things were happening. Music was coming along, and people were just checking out of society, you know, tripping on drugs. All of that stuff was going on. I'm taking you way down memory lane. Gas lines were developing. Remember at the gas pumps? I, re I remember as a kid these long lines of gas and everybody just standing there because the price of oil was skyrocketing. And you had uh, Israel was involved in the late 60s with the Six-Day War. And you had the murders in Munich at the Olympics. And all of that stuff was going on. And through that starts to come out of the ground this movement called the Jesus Movement. It was started in Southern California. And young people who had been turning to drugs to say, if this, all, if this is all the wars have accomplished, World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, if this is all it's accomplished, we might as well just do drugs, get high, and just live out our lives for some bit of pleasure. And then all of a sudden, people started to listen to the gospel. What if Jesus coming back really is true? And people started getting saved really by the thousands, and there really was, I believe, a genuine revival during that time. Many churches were launched. We're here today, I believe, in part because of that. We're part of a church plant from Raw Reese who comes out of that. Uh, so you see all of those things that took place. Then there was an excitement about the return of Christ during that time. I mean, there was, little, there was movies. Churches were doing plays about the uh, return of Christ. Any of you ever remember this in the early 70s? There were songs like Two Men Walking Up a Hill, one disappears, the other left standing still. Remember these kind of things? I remember them even as a kid. And then came the 80s. That's where my middle school and high school years. Then came MTV to help us forget that none of that was going to happen. Jesus isn't going to come back. You're going to have your MTV. Matter of fact, Chuck, uh, uh, Pastor Joe Foch up in Philadelphia he recently said, he goes, we're living in the first generation that was raised by MTV. That was raised by MTV. Because then you had, in the 80s, you had latchkey kids, because mom and dad were both making a whole lot of money. Remember that movie, Working Girl? And there was, everyone was trying to make as much money as they possibly could, and people were making money, and the stock market was flying up. And uh, all of a sudden, those that had been hippies decided that, hey, living poor isn't, so, isn't really for me after all. Let's actually make money. There was all that going on, and the, the wall broke down, and so there was another euphoria that, hey, there's going to be peace around the world because the wall came down. But was there peace after that? No. It ushered in a whole other thing. Then we've had the age of terrorism ever since then, and more unrest and more problems 
and it's just beginning. And we don't really even know where, where all of this is headed exactly because Jesus said you won't be able to pinpoint it, but we do have a lot of things that are taking place. And through all of that, it brings us to where we're at today. And the question is, how many people now, like the early 70s, that period of time where people were excited about the return of Christ, how many people that are in the body of Christ today are excited about the return of Christ? And I hope that as we go verse by verse through the Bible, that there's nothing that I could do to excite myself about the return of Christ. And there's really nothing that you can do to excite yourself about it. And there's nothing that we collectively do, but the Holy Spirit can excite us about the return of Christ. Amen? And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God, it's my prayer and my hope as we're in Luke 17 that the Holy Spirit would ignite in us an understanding that Jesus' return is sooner now than it was in the early 70s. Now, that's fact, isn't it? That's not, a, that's not theoretical. It is absolutely fact that Jesus is closer now, but if they were more excited in the 70s than they are now, something's wrong because he actually definitively is closer to returning today than he was then. Now, what does that mean exactly? Do we know exact time, date, hour? Absolutely not. But we should be looking up because the scriptures say our redemption draweth what? Nigh, closer. And those that don't know their redemption need to come to know it. So again, if you're taking notes, uh, our time of the word again this morning, signs of his coming, part two. And we left off as we picked up in verse 25 with Jesus speaking of this coming suffering. If you're taking notes, we're really just looking at two things this morning. We had five to start off with. We covered three last week. The first is his suffering that he speaks of here. He speaks of the fact that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Uh, he spoke of um, the fact that uh, in verse 24, that he, when he returns, it would be visible just like lightning going across the sky. But before that takes place, verse 25, but he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's interesting oftentimes when Jesus speaks, he can speak about vast spans of time in a single sentence because he sits outside of time. So if you were hearing him, he's like, okay, you said that it, it would be visible like lightning going across the sky, but first he'd have to suffer many things. So what is that, all in a week? We're talking at least a 2,000-year gap in those two statements, right? Because he's speaking of where? When he talked about the suffering man, son of man must suffer many things, he's speaking of going to Golgotha. He's speaking of heading to Jerusalem and dying for the sins of the world, dying for the sins of his people. They didn't see that, recognize that, think in those terms. They were looking again for a king that would be like a Caesar coming in, setting up his rule and reign. They did want it to be highly visible. They would have wanted Jerusalem to be known throughout the world as reestablished as the world's premier city, the center of the kingdom of God. But Jesus said something else has to take place first. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Uh, this was a prophecy that they would not only see, get this, they would not only see this prophecy be fulfilled, they would ultimately help it be fulfilled. They would actually be the ones to ensure that this prophecy was fulfilled. Though they didn't know that at the time, in the sense that they, they had wanted Jesus dead for a while, 
they, the crucifixion wasn't the necessary way. They thought of other ways. It just finally came to a head that they realized that was the best, most expedient way that they could get it done was to have the Romans crucify him. But they had, they had been kind of thinking other ways they could kill Jesus, but God was going to make sure that all those points of intersection led to the cross. And they would be a part of the very generation. He said, this generation has to reject me. And they would be the generation to reject him. They would be the one to reject God's very only begotten son and the substitute for their sin. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, even though they'd be the ones to reject him and take him to the cross, that strange irony is that we all needed him to go to the cross, right? When every time it gets around Easter and we read that story, don't you kind of wish it didn't have to happen? Don't you wish there was some other way? And yet, they were the ones that would take him to the cross, make sure that this prophecy was fulfilled, and later, many of them would just, you know, you look at someone like Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He came to believe in Jesus. He came to put his faith and trust in Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. If he doesn't go to the cross, there's no healing for us. If he doesn't lay down his life a ransom for many, we can't be healed from sin. We can't have eternal life. There, he sa it says in that verse, our peace was upon him. Boy, if you ever want peace, there's no other way to find it on planet Earth than Jesus Christ. There's not another way. And, you know, I don't know, all of us in this, if we, go back, if we were able to tell our story one by one, we've tried to find peace in other things. And even after we're saved, we still go and try and peace in other things, don't we? We're all guilty of it. Like, this movie will relax me. Right? And for a period of time, it does. As soon as you turn off, I'm not relaxed again. Can I stay in the movie? Right? We need his peace. But that was through the cross. It, it, it's troubling to us that it took such a violent death. That Jesus, he wasn't just sent to die. It wasn't like he was just sent to a firing squad, and within seconds it was over. He said he had to what? Suffer. He had to suffer. I don't understand why that was, because uh, if you understand kosher, the animals don't suffer, right? When animals are slaughtered for kosher food, they don't suffer. And all the sacrificial types, there was not suffering involved, but Jesus was not just the type. He was the literal sacrifice, and he was actually commanded by the Father to suffer, not just to die, but also to suffer. And not just to suffer, many things. That was the fact that he felt like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have my disciples left me? Why has the world chosen Barabbas, who was an absolute anarchist in his time, a wicked man? They chose him over someone who had healed people and fed people, and he suffered so many things. They didn't see their need they, they did see a need to be liberated from Rome, but they didn't see their need for a sin sacrifice. They didn't understand that the Old Testament scriptures had already prophesied about Jesus. Take Daniel chapter 7. It said that the kingdom would indeed come to fulfillment, but according to Daniel 9, that Messiah, who would be Christ himself, he would be cut off from the people, but for the people. Cut off is a, is a, is a term that he would be 
he would be killed. He would be cut off from the land of the living, if you will, for the sins of the people. Daniel 9 made that clear. Those people were the very Pharisees that he was talking to. And when you understand that the prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled uh, are so important to understanding the validity and the certainty of the future ones, then you'll have more confidence when you talk to people about the second coming of Jesus. Why? Because we know the first coming, he was 100% out of 100% accurate, right? Not a single error. He fulfilled it all. Prophesied that he'd be born of a virgin. He was. Prophesied he'd be born in Bethlehem. He was, right? Prophesied he would come up out of Egypt. He did, right? All of the things that it said would take place, he fulfilled them all. He'd be cut off for the people, that he'd be despised and rejected of men. He was despised and rejected of men. All of the things that it said, even uh, in the Psalms, it said that his hands and uh, feet were be pierced. This was before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. All of these things will be fulfilled. And here he's telling them, before the Son of Man sets up his kingdom, one major thing has to take place. He's going to have to suffer and be rejected. So he says, before you'll ever see, you'll know for certain. So if someone arrived while Jesus was on the scene, and someone says, hey, I'm the Son of Man, I'm going to set up the kingdom, you'd know he was false because if you said, hey, have you ever suffered and been killed for uh, your claim? No. No, I'm going to live a life of prosperity. I'm going to bring you all into it too. He would be a fraud. Jesus was going to suffer and die first. G.B. Hardy said, only the supernatural mind can have prior knowledge to the natural mind. If the Bible has foreknowledge, historical and scientific, beyond the permutation of chance, it truly then bears the fingerprint of God. What separates Jesus from any teacher the world has ever seen is he told what was going to happen before it happened, and then it happened. Amen? But not only did it happen, he was, he was the means of it happening. He was the very one that fulfilled the thing. You know, even when Pilate didn't want, didn't want anything to do with Jesus, then he finally, he's kind of trapped, he's got to do something. He marveled at Jesus. Marveled. Where are you from? He said, my kingdom's not of this world, didn't he? Marveled. Pilate could see. People could see, especially non-religious people sometimes could really see, like the Roman centurion right after he died, he said, truly this was the son of God. The very men that nailed him to the tree realized this man was different than any other man they'd ever seen. They'd done many crucifixions. They'd never seen anyone like him because he really was come down out of heaven. Then he goes on, and he switches gears rather quickly. So he takes us from the cross all the way to the end of time. Are we in the end of time? Perhaps, scripturally speaking, uh, we have more evidence now than has ever been in the history of the world that we are. Uh, take, for example, uh, our study in Ezekiel, we get to chapter 37, the dry bones coming light. Prior to 1948, Israel was not a nation. That is a huge marker on the prophetic timeline. Anytime before 1948, people could say, well, we've got a major problem. Israel's not even a country. After 48, we can't say that anymore. Jesus said this generation would not pass away. We don't know exactly what that means. There's some things scripturally, uh, 75 years, 80 years, 100 years. There's different uh, ways of looking at that. But some of those things 
uh, will become clearer and clearer as we get closer. I've used, the, I've used the illustration before. You know, when you're riding down the highway and you're looking at a distance and you are trying to make out a sign, especially if you don't have your glasses on and you need glasses, you'll think it says all kinds of things until you get a little closer. Like, wow, that's at Arby's. I didn't realize that. You know, that, you know, right? I was looking for Chick-fil-A, and you know, that that's not what the logo was or whatever. You can see clearly when it gets closer, and these things will become more clear, but Jesus is going to give us some indications. If you're taking notes, uh, we looked at his suffering. This is his prophecy and warning. Uh, now, the fact of the matter, all of what he's talking about here is prophetic, the cross as well, but we're looking at from our means of understanding prophecy as it relates to the end times, his prophecy and warning. And the first thing we want to look at is the condition. He gives us the condition of the world when he's going to return the second time. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in your Bibles, there's a lot about the first coming, which is Jesus being born as a baby in Bethlehem, dying on the cross. Did you know there's more in the Bible, considerably more actually, about his second coming than his first coming? Did you know that? There's more in the Bible about his second coming than his first coming. What is it that almost all the world talks about the most? The first coming. Now, we have to talk a lot about the first coming because if we don't talk about the first coming, I can't really present the gospel to anybody. Amen? So we have to talk about the first coming. But it wouldn't stop there because Jesus had so much to say and the scriptures have so much to say about his second coming because that is the readying stuff. That's the stuff that makes you stay on your toes, spiritually speaking. Be ready. You could come at any moment. The virgins with the oil, all of those things were... were uh, reminders of us to be ready. But he gives us the condition of the world. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. I isn't it fascinating for, the, for Jesus to talk about the end of the world? He goes all the way back thousands of years to the book of Genesis. And both examples are from the book of Genesis. Both examples are ancient examples well, it's true. We can, if we don't learn anything from history, we haven't learned a whole lot, have we? And Jesus makes this point that the, the end times will mirror two other times, and now both times preceded destruction, right? Sodom was soon to be completely, not just partial destruction, we're talking about complete annihilation. And the world, in Noah's time, the flood, complete annihilation, complete destruction, both times, he says, that the end times would mirror in the same manner. And he says they ate, they drank, they married their wives, they were given in marriage until the day, until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the day of Lot, days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Now, a couple of things that were taking place. Jesus gives the light view of what was going on those days. He actually gives the view that people generally have at all times. We, we tend to remember the good times, don't we? We kind of remember those. We fondly remember the past, and we somehow have the ability to block out the painful stuff. He gives the ostrich and the uh, head in the sand view of those days, that people were like, hey, it's, this is smooth sailing. Wedding parties, building stuff, planting things, growing our business, maximizing profits, 
building bigger houses, building bigger kingdoms, all of the things that people are focused on. He says, just as it was in those days, people will be level set focused on enjoying life, building bigger, bigger and better things, basically creating heaven on earth, just as they did with the Tower of Babel. You know, how, how can we create what we want as our own personal utopia? And people will be generally enjoying life. But at the same time, the Bible tells us some other things about those times. In Genesis chapter 6, 5 and 6, and then verse 11, here's what it was like also. At the same time people were trying to normalize and enjoy life, this is what also was happening on the earth before the flood came. And for Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. That doesn't sound like a fun time, does it? Every thought of man was evil. The whole world was unsaved except for one little family. You think it's bad where you work or where you live? This is how bad it was. The whole world was lost. Nobody wanted God. Nobody. And at the same time, people were profiting and having festivals and having marriage and all these other things and uh, profits and we're building and all the stuff that we focus on still today. People were being murdered and killed and violence. But everyone they say, would always think, but it's not so bad. Not so bad. In the days of Lot, well, in Genesis 18, 20, it says, And the Lord said, he's speaking to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, full of sin. And in Ezekiel 16, 49, it says, This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. They had fullness of food, abundance of idleness, lots of free time. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were very self-centered. Lots of free time. Lots of self-centeredness, full of pride, and we also know Sodom was full of every kind of sexual immorality found on the planet, and all that stuff was happening before the flood, too. So Jesus said, at the same time that sin was great, people basically think it's no big deal, life is normal, and let's just enjoy life because God, he's not going to ever interfere with what we're doing. A recent report says that 45% of Americans think that God wants them to be happy more than anything else. You realize, 45% of Americans think God wants them to be happy more than anything else. Now, I want to tell you, God actually does want us to be happy, but not first and foremost. What God wants more than anything else is for people to be saved. Right? Saved. After he makes us holy, Happiness is a byproduct, but that's not God's focus. His focus is a rescue mission, right? Not a just kind of gloss over things and a, you know, a spiritual temporary happiness. That's not what God wants to give. He wants to be, bring salvation and forgiveness more than anything else. A Pew poll recently uh, showed that church attendance in our country is now at the lowest point in 20 years. Why? Because people don't think Jesus is going to return. They heard about that stuff. That was in the 70s. Yeah, you guys believe that. Oil lines, this, that, and the other. You not still believe that stuff. Not going to happen. We're just, we're, we're having a good time. Things are going well. And Jesus said it. That was the way it was in Sodom. That's the way it was in the days of Noah. People were actually getting by pretty good. And as long as they avoided 
some of the worst things that were happening on earth, it was somebody else's problem. Somebody else was dying. Somebody else got murdered. Something else happened, but for the most part, people were focused on living life to the fullest. Uh, a recent Gallup poll in 2012 showed that atheism in the entire world is on the rise. We have a rise of people not even believing in God anymore, not any kind of religion at all. Islam, as you know, is arguably the fastest growing religion on earth. It's taking over entire countries, and that's a complete rejection of Jesus Christ. What has rejection to Jesus done in the world, though? Well, it's done the same things that it did in the days of Sodom and did in the days of Noah. It has society imploding from the inside out. A rejection of God is really a rejection of peace. A rejection of God is a rejection of life. A rejection of God is a rejection of sanity. And that's why we see people having a collective... You know, sometimes you ever watch the news and you're like, have people lost their minds? In a sense, yes. Yeah. Because when we reject God, there is no soundness of thought. It's really, literally spinning out of control. I mean, recently, uh, even our president said that. I can't remember what it was back in the fall, I want to say, that he mentioned that. It seemed like things are kind of, uh, they, they, they can't really be slowed down or controlled. I can't remember the exact words that he used, but it's true. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow what? cold. I don't care about other people. As long as we're happy, as long as we're enjoying it, you know, that's, that's their problem. That's somebody else's issue. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of the, uh, the attitude of the world as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 3 and 4, and, of course, he speaks of the Noahic flood here as well in verse 5. Uh, Peter says in 2 uh, Peter 3, 3 and 4, he said, Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to what? Their own lust. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? You Calvary Chapel people, you still think Jesus is coming? Where is the promise of his coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, at least they mention creation. Some people still believe in that. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God of heaven and old, that the earth standing out of water and in the water, he goes on to say, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with the water. It was a complete, complete destruction. And in the days of um, Noah, people looked at what Noah was doing. What in the world is he building? People might look into your life and say, what in the world are you doing with your life? You could actually be, ha you could be enjoying it so much more, and you're spending it at a Bible study? You know? What a waste of your time. In all the moral collapse, you go back again, back to Sodom, back to the time. We want to keep looking back for just a second here. If you go back to those times and you were living in the time of Noah's flood, if you're living in the time of Sodom, and you could see what was going on, and Abraham could see it. Abraham could see what was going on in Sodom. He interceded for Sodom, didn't he? He was broken at that city. He knew God was going to destroy it. He knew that the time was ticking. That he did, there wasn't much time left. Abraham was interceding for the city, but he could see, and if you could see, the moral collapse and the violence and the lawlessness and then you would look on and say, but why is everyone acting like it's business as usual? But then we look at our time. We say, 
we see the same thing, don't we? People are able to easily tune that out. Easily. Do you realize that a lot of our young people in this country don't even watch the news? They get Twitter feeds. And you know what they like to subscribe to the most for get their news? Comical news. Comical news that just makes it all goofy. Stephen Colbert kind of stuff. Whatever you see that just everything is just a punchline. Right? That's the way people get news today. Little soundbite that make it kind of light, kind of fluffy, kind of goofy, or just disassociated, or they'll just kind of slander every different which way. And then, you know, you talk to young people, they say, well, I don't even know it's true anymore. Satan's pretty crafty, isn't he? Just all these you know, thoughts, and, and so it becomes just a mass of nothing information, just overload, and you're like, well, there must not be any big deal because the bowl of Fruit Loops I just ate tasted good. Okay, what does that got to do with anything? Exactly. It's just kind of, you're just a robotic in your thinking. That's where our young people have, uh, again, they've been kind of just uh, overwhelmed uh, by the enemy's use of just kind of monotony and just live your life. Most of the world will convince themselves that the turbulence will pass, right? It's kind of like when you're flying, you have a you drop in the air, and that's going to pass. It's not a big deal. This is not the plane going down. This is nothing. Turbulence will pass. The things are the same as they've always been. And in fact, here's the best part. Some people even will believe and convince other people that things are actually getting way better. I think things are getting better. After all, it wasn't that long ago. We didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have touch devices. We didn't have instant search and face-to-face -face phone apps. We didn't have Netflix, Xbox, iTunes, GPS, all sitting in the palm of our hand. I got hired in 1999 when uh, I was with a Canadian software company, and then Microsoft hired me in 1999, and I was traveling all over, and I was speaking at lots of things about technology. I remember I had a Palm Pilot. Remember those? I had a Palm Pilot. I had two laptops. I talked about NASA data, the Library of Congress, and how the fact that they were like two terabytes. Now everybody just buys a hard drive and it's two terabytes with a laptop and even a thin profile device. No big deal, right? We were talking about that was just massive amounts of data. I remember having uh, this one um, director uh, of an IT organization for healthcare, he told me, he goes, my nurses will never need to send emails more than two megabytes. You know the kind of files they send now between hospitals now? They send your entire medical records sometimes, and they need a lot more pipe than to send a little two megabyte email. Things have changed dramatically. Fifteen years later, we have all the things that, uh, you know, the, go back to the year 2000. You did not have smartphones in the year 2000 with all the stuff we have today. That's just normal stuff. Our generation of kids think, when, did, when was there not Wi-Fi, right? My oldest daughter is, you know, 15. So when was there not this stuff? Oh, just like just the year before you were born? And most of it's like seven to eight years old. Really, really the stuff that we see is uh, most normal in technology and entertainment. So we have all those things, and we even have more promise for this coming Christmas season. More is coming, and next Christmas season, we'll have even more. No wonder people look at Little House in the Prairie longingly sometimes. <laughs> I kind of have a, just a well, you know, just, a, right? A wooden bucket, right? 
I mean, even like today's kids sometimes will be fascinated. Like, like people really live that way. You know, not that long ago. Some of your grandparents can really tell you about those days. Literally. But as technology and information and entertainment has increased, and the fact that you can watch your NFL game sit in the doctor's office right on your phone, and you can watch that Netflix movie no matter where you're at, and you can never be disconnected from anything. And you have more leisure time now, more choices, more convenience. Push the button on the microwave, popcorn will be ready when you get back. All of that stuff in our lifetimes. Options that previous generations did not have, that mankind had never seen before in our lifetimes. Daniel said that in chapter 12, verse 4, that people would run to and fro and that knowledge would increase. The amount of knowledge increase is amazing. You realize that data is doubling constantly in the world. We used to save tiny bits of information. Now we save everything in the cloud. I mean everything. Sometimes you wish, do I really have to save all this stuff? Every single picture is... Some people literally post every picture on Facebook, all of them. Like, I don't need to see your entire vacation. Share it with the family, not the rest of us. No. Sorry if you did that recently, anyway. I loved every one of them. No, I'm kidding. But with all that stuff, is life actually better? Does all those things, having all that stuff, is life actually better? Are people at more rest and more peace? Because in the days of Noah, Jesus said, they were trying to do it all. In the days of Sodom, they were trying to do it all. They were trying to have it all. They didn't realize that destruction was at the door, did they? It was so close, and they didn't recognize it. Don't get me wrong. I like, I like technology. I like the advances of technology uh, just because I think they're cool, and I, I think God's given us a brain to think through things, and I think it's wonderful to see people use their creativity. These things in and of themselves aren't wrong, in and of themselves they're not sin. Paul said he could use the things of this world as those not misusing them. I'm thankful that Gutenberg created a printing press because now we have a Bible. And I'm thankful that we can actually use the internet to reach people and software today that we can take languages and actually interpret languages and to reach the lost more easily because we're harnessing those things. But while the world is using it for evil, things like pornography and all kinds of other stuff, we as Christians can use it for good. But let me tell you, even while all those things are happening, it's still drowning many people in just the constant overload of it all. And they don't even know how to disconnect. We have lots of studies that are young people, their brains aren't working correctly because they're so overloaded now. Satan is doing all of these things. But in the meantime, people say, no, no everything's same. We still had a nice vacation. So-and-so's getting married. This, and yet there's this slow impact that's taking place. The enemy uses all these things as distractions from reality. That the world, and what's the reality? Here's, here's what the enemy tried to convince Sodom and the days of Noah. He tried to convince them. He's trying to convince us today. This world is not fading away. Neither are you. It's not fading away, but it is fading away. Book of Romans says, all creation groans for the appearing of the Lord. Did you know that? The trees even want God to come back. They're getting eaten by insects, and our beautiful green field is now a brown field out there, right? Because winter's coming, and the grass knows, and the, someday everything will be green again, but until that time comes, the world really is fading away. And so are our own individual bodies, and the older you get, you know that, don't you? You didn't have to use Ben Gay years ago, did you? 
He laughed at those commercials. Now, where is that Ben K? You know, I could use it. A Wall Street Journal article stated in 2014 that prescription drug spending has ballooned to $374 billion, billion dollars in the United States, a 13.1% increase Spending on diseases, spending on mental disorders, digestive disorders, sleep disorders have all skyrocketed. And guess what? None of them have really fixed anything. In fact, many of these are actually getting worse. And the more prescription drugs that are actually built for them, some of the... the you ever watch the symptoms from them? You're like, whoa, I don't think I want that. May cause diarrhea, insomnia, blood, all the way down the line. You're like, that sounds wonderful. That sounds worse than the other problem. The impact of sin and death is all around us. But Jesus said that people would ignore the evidence. As they did in Sodom, as they did in the days of Noah, people would see the evidence. They would see the sin as grave. They would see the violence. They would see all that stuff. But they would say, but it didn't touch us so bad just yet. So it must be somebody else. It can't be possibly us. And they'll ignore the evidence when they really need to look to Jesus. They need to look to the Lord. And they'll absorb themselves in what? This is what Jesus is speaking of. They ate, they drank, they married. Busyness. Just stay busy. You know, my wife were actually watching a sitcom, and, and, and actually they, they, they were talking about death, and the ending thought was, if we just stay busy enough, we won't think about all that stuff. And that is, someone just said, they thought they were just being clever. That is exactly what the enemy wants. Just stay super busy, stay super engaged in entertainment, and just work, and building things up, and getting things done. Do all that you can to make heaven on earth, and you won't even know when the end has come in. What the other, one other thing as I was studying this text, I noticed Jesus points out some things. He's very specific. He doesn't talk about the, the violence and the other stuff that was going on. Do you think he knew what other stuff was going on then? Absolutely he did. But he focuses on just the fact that everyone was going to still try and just live life to the fullest. And you notice that when we get to heaven, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. You notice that people are trying to build their life and their dream here. And Jesus says, I've, I've got your dream house in heaven. Also, he talks about people having marriages and big feasts. Do you know that he also talks about there's a marriage supper in heaven? All the things that we try, we were built in the image of God, we actually try and mirror the things that will be eternal, and we try and make them for now. And that's not wrong to have weddings or wrong to have a house. I'm saying it's wrong, what Jesus is saying is wrong that those things are the primary focus of your life. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and those other things would be added as needed. We have it backwards. We actually seek first those things, and we add Jesus as we think we need him, as a little side dish to life. But things aren't working out like, I should probably take another little helping of Jesus. And we've got it backwards. So he warns as it was in those days. Let's look at the escape. Um, but he says, on that day that Lot went out, fire and brimstone rained. He also talks about Noah entering the ark. There is an escape. Noah escaped. Lot escaped. Everyone didn't escape, but Lot did. The, the New Testament, despite Lot's shortcomings, and he had some, for real, <laughs> it, the Bible says that he was a righteous man. In other words, that he was saved. It wasn't that he was living a life like Abraham did, who lived a faithful, righteous life. 
anyone in this room, if you're saved, you're saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your works did not save you. There's some in here that are more mature in the faith, that have walked longer with Christ, that have done more for the Lord, but that's all by grace. Lot was saved by grace. Abraham was saved by grace. But there is an escape. And Noah escaped, and his family escaped. Scriptures tell us eight in all. Noah's had uh, three sons and their wives, plus Noah's wife. And Lot escaped. Lot's two daughters escaped. Supposed to be a lot more people in Lot's family escaping, but a lot of them didn't escape. And what about the church? What about the church during this time in which we live in? What about the church, if you will, those that were following the Lord during those times? There will be some, there will be some Noahs, and there will be some Lots in our time. There'll be some Noahs that will escape. There'll be some lots that will escape. There'll also be some Noah families where almost everyone in Noah's family, everyone in the family escaped. But in Lot's family, not everyone in the family escaped. What does that tell us? Well, there'll be some church families where almost the entire church escapes. And there'll be some church families where a lot of the church will not escape. Remember, Jesus talks about the two groups of virgins. We don't even know exactly. There's a lot of schools of thought on that. What exactly does Jesus mean? Are those saved and unsaved, or are they actually both saved and some are not ready? I can't definitively say. I've heard good teachings on both, and I'd say, I'll find that. I just want to be ready and not know which one the bad group is, right? How about that? Make it real simple. Just follow the Lord, because Jesus left a lot of things kind of a little bit up for debate, if you will. But what's not up for debate is being ready. There is an escape, and the Lord wants us to escape these things. But there'll be some Christians, and there'll be some church families that are ready, and there'll be some that are not. There'll be some that'll be in love with Christ, and there'll be some, like Lot. Lot, the whole reason he ends up in Sodom is because he fell, in, he fell back in love with the world. He pitched his scent his tent towards Sodom. He took his family, instead of staying close to Abraham and saying, you know, if you want to be mentored in life, who in here wouldn't want to be mentored by Abraham? Lot didn't. You would say, well, anyone would want to be mentored by Abraham. He was a godly man. God blessed him. Everything he touched turned to, he had like the Midas touch, but it was because the blessing of the Lord was upon him. I'd want to hang out near somebody like that, right? That's why a lot of guys wanted to be near Pastor Chuck, because they could see the anointing on his life. But Lot said, you know, Abraham, you've done some pretty interesting things, but, but Sodom is amazing. Sodom looks like Vegas. Neon lights. Kids, you're going to love it there. You can get the best education there. You're going to get all the benefits of Sodom. And his kids, he takes the whole family there, and he actually leads his whole family to destruction, doesn't he? But he himself gets saved. I don't think many people would say, well, I don't, care if I, I don't care if my kids survive as long as I survive. That's not a good choice to make. There's going to be some lots, there's going to be some Noahs. Noah preached and lived for 100 years. And while the world refused his message, his family was actually saved from destruction. Isn't that great? His family did listen. His family listened. He led by example, and he kept them from deception. Lot pitched his tent towards the wrong direction. He pitched his tent towards the world. And then when he went out to speak to his son-in-laws, when Lot went to speak to his son-in-laws, you know what they thought? They thought he was joking. 
In Genesis 19, they thought, uh, he said, get out of this place, the Lord's going to destroy it, but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. His life had been so compromised, he had no credibility anymore. He had no credibility with his children, his family. Then you have the fact that uh, you know, Lot was supposed to be representing the truth. And we have pastors and churches that are supposed to be representing the truth. But Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're explaining, hey, everything's fine. There's, there's, no, there's no judgment potentially coming. But Abraham, you know, one of the things about Abraham and Lot is in both those times, do you realize that before the end came, God put an Abraham and God put a Lot. I mean, God put a Noah. Abraham pleaded for Sodom. Lot pleaded for the world, I mean, Noah pleaded for the world. And so Abraham, who's not mentioned here, and Noah are pictures of two faithful servants to the end. Lot is saved, but missed the opportunity to actually warn people. Does that make sense? So we have Lot's and we have Noah's. We want to be like Noah. We want to be ready. You'd be, uh, in those times and in our time today, you'll have religion, but not truth. You'll have teaching that mirrors the desires of the world rather than teaching that mirrors uh, what God has spoken. Uh, Scripture talks about a form of godliness. And today, many people, they want meditation, they want relaxation, they want mysticism, they want forms of spirituality rather than actual Jesus Christ, which actually brings real peace. See, the church is placed here. Uh, Jesus said, you know, hey, the world was waxing in a certain direction. The church is placed here to point people to the exit sign. That's what we're here to do, to point people to the exit sign. This is, get off now, you're creening before a cliff. And that's what, uh, that's what Lot, eventually, he finally comes to his senses, and he does warn, doesn't he? But we don't want to fit to the place that when we finally warn people, they're like, you live just like me. Why would I listen to you? That's what they thought. They're like, look, you, you think Sodom's the greatest thing on earth? We think Sodom's the greatest thing on earth. Why would we listen to what you have to say? But eventually... They're both removed, and the judgment does come. Eventually, it does come. And I, you know, just as we kind of wrap things up, there really is going to be a rapture of the church. There really is. I, I believe it's before the tribulation. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound the dead in Christ, are raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. I believe we really will, if we're saved, meet him in the clouds before he sends the judgment of the tribulation period. Now, there's debate among Christians, something uh, mid-tribulation, uh, a pre-wrath uh, view, uh, post-tribulation. But again, if you look at what Jesus outlines here, notice that Lot and Noah are pulled out before the judgment falls. And I believe we will be pulled out before the judgment falls. There was already... There was already persecution. Some will say, well, they, what about persecution? You don't think Lot, uh, you don't, the Bible says he was tormented by them constantly just making fun. Originally, they kind of liked him, but after a while, and he got closer to the end, there was kind of a distancing. Uh, and certainly Noah, well, you know he took a lot of ridicule over 100 years. And we're going to take ridicule as being believers. But Jesus is saying here, we close with this warning he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. He specifically calls her out. She was taken into the world by her own husband. 
and she fell in love with it to the point she couldn't give it up. And so many people that started out following Christ and loving Christ, they somewhere along the way fell back in love with the world and they can't give it up. They fell back in love with the very things that God wants to rescue us out of. Jesus speaks of the fact that uh, there'll be this time when he'll come and uh, which, by the way, uh, from a scientific perspective, he identifies that the world can be dark on one side and light on the other. Did you notice that in the text? He talks about the fact that uh, two men uh, will be in a bed. This is not two men in a bed the way we might think of it today. Uh, in those days, um, you know, it was not uncommon. You know, if, if men were traveling and they'd stay in an inn or something like that. That, uh, you know, it wasn't like you had uh, the Hilton Garden Inn and you each got your own bed and all that kind of stuff. You got a small little thing and that's where you laid down in to, speak, to sleep or kind of bed for the night. But that was normal that, uh, you know, you would actually have small rooms and people packed in them. And he talks about in the night one is taken, but he also talks about two women grinding together and two men in the field. And they were not working in the fields at nighttime. So it's Jesus saying around the world there'll be this time when some will be ready, one's taken and the other's left. Notice, each time there's two, one was ready and one was not. Lot was ready, Lot's wife was not. Lot was ready, his wife was not. And the Lord wants everyone in this room to be ready. Matthew 24, 44, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is a coming an hour you do not expect. Even when we know he's coming, we still won't expect it. Isn't that amazing? We still won't expect it. Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He is coming quickly. And he's coming quickly, and I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to his return. William Barclay said, Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. All the things that we're looking for in life, he fulfills them, and he's going to take us home to be with him to live forever. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time again this morning. We know you're going to return. And Lord, I pray that you would make it more clear in our hearts that your return is near, that you would make it more clear to us, Lord, to be ready. Lord, that you've given us all the grace and all the mercy to live a life like Abraham did, like Noah did. They're just men like us, Lord. They, they weren't more spiritual they were just more yielded, and then, then they received more of your Holy Spirit in their life. And Lord, we want to receive more of your power to be a light and a witness, Lord, to warn those of the things that are coming, because we know, Lord, that even what we've read isn't even, isn't even close to, Lord, what will be revealed. But Lord, we want to be wise and not be those that are building our houses on sand, but building on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.